My name is Matt Mosier, and I am one of the elders here at uh, Providence Road. Really grateful that you're here, grateful that you've chosen to spend your, um, your Sunday morning with us. I also want to say thanks to anybody that came out uh, yesterday for the workday at the building. Um, we're getting a lot of stuff done. And so kind of keep your, keep your ears open, and we got a lot of opportunities coming up. We're really excited about what's happening in Providence Road. It's really kind of amazing to see what God has provided for us kind of come together. And so we've had guys out there the past couple weekends working, and we're really grateful um, for all the guys and girls that, that have come out. And so I'm going to make the announcement again later, but if you have a heartbeat, please come next Saturday. We, got a, we have a ton of work that needs to be done. So anyway, um, what we're going to do today is finish up the, our, our series on the Lord's Prayer. So we've done two parts so far. Jeremy and Jay have, have both um, taken the first parts of, of that. And uh, if you haven't heard their sermons, I would encourage you to go listen to those. Uh, we have them available on the resources part of the website or the podcast or something like that. So when we started thinking about what, what we were going to do at this time, and, and prayer was this big thing, it's something we wanted to emphasize in Prov Road. Prayer, um, prayer is basically sociologists and anthropologists throughout history. If you look back, um, one sociologist is saying, where, there, where you find humans, you find prayer. It is something that cultures and people have always done. And so even now, even now when we are becoming increasingly uh, less religiously affiliated, I guess. So even now, like a, a recent study from the Pew Center uh, on millennials, which is a lot of us in this room and young adults, found that while we are less religiously affiliated, that is, you know, uh, regular church attendance, we still pray the same amount as previous cultures. So uh, 41% said they, they pray daily. And this if you go back at the same ages in previous cultures, they, I mean, previous generations, they, they found the same thing. That, so we actually still pray the same amount. And then the, the Pew Center also found that even though, uh, you know, we, we would think, okay, we're becoming less uh, religious of a culture or whatever, but um, we found that over the past two decades, the amount of people that, that, pray, that say that they pray daily has increased, right? So prayer is just something that we all do. Prayer is a big part of who we are. There's, there's just something wired into us. Um, and so we see cultures in the past doing it. Um, so I, I do want to point out that while we talk about prayer being fairly universal, that doesn't mean that prayer is the same in all these different places. Um, Tim Keller, in his book, Prayer, he warns against what he calls untethered prayer. That'd be ter- prayer that's sort of, you know, ungrounded from reality. And he says this, without immersion in God's words, Our prayers may not be merely limited and shallow, but also untethered from reality. Without prayer that answers to the God of the Bible, we will only be talking to ourselves. So we're obviously a people that pray, but a lot of us struggle with what to pray and how to pray and when to pray and what do I I say um, when I pray. And so I I feel like um, this is kind of where we find ourselves this morning. A little bit maybe confused or maybe overwhelmed with just everything that's going on, and and in particular, prayer. And so, thankfully, the Bible speaks right into this. I feel like this is the situation the disciples found themselves in before the Sermon on the Mount. So, um, in Matthew chapter 4, we hear about Jesus calling his disciples, and he begins his public ministry. And because he's preaching and teaching in the synagogue and healing, he develops a large following and a large crowd. And you can imagine that the disciples, as this happened, are kind of like, what did we get ourselves into here? Like, what are we doing? So the Sermon on the Mount finds Jesus taking his disciples um, 
even with the crowds all around and sitting them down and specifically teaching right to them. And this is where we find uh, the prayer that we're going to go through this morning. It's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. This is God's instruction to us. So starting in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 5, read this, read this to us. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, This is God's word. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction. We thank you um, that you don't leave us in the dark with prayer. Um, I pray that um, as we go through the last part of this prayer you taught us um, this morning, God, that we will see um, just how amazing of... um, this prayer really is what we're actually asking. Um, and so, Jesus, please open our, our, our eyes and, and our ears and our hearts and let the Spirit um, take the word and uh, impact us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So as I was preparing for this, I kept thinking about this commercial. and Some of you may remember it. Some of you probably don't. So there's, there, in the commercial, there's three elderly ladies sitting, sitting in a room, and, and one of them has... Um, taped pictures to her wall. So she's posted pictures to her, her wall, and now she's sharing them with her friends that are sitting, sitting on the couch. One of the friends just thinks this is great, and the other one goes, that's not how this is supposed to work. That's not how any of this is supposed to work. And so that, that kept coming up to me, and I, I feel like that's kind of Jesus' attitude when he goes into the Sermon on the Mount. Right? He, he sees his disciples. His disciples have all these preconceived notions of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like or um, just even in their culture and all these different things. And we, you know, we see Jesus turning all these things upside down throughout his teachings. Right? We hear, what do we hear? We hear, blessed are the poor. We hear the meek shall inherit the earth. The first will be last. Love your enemies. You must be born again. And these, these things are just they don't, they don't make sense in a, lot of, in a lot of ways. This is the way Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of God is, we, sometimes we say it's kind of like a paradox or this upside-down kingdom. It's not the way that we think it was supposed to be, and that's, that's true of the disciples too. So he's sitting them down, teaching them the Sermon on the Mount, and they're just, I mean, in a lot of ways, even we read it now, we're like, that's, that's not how I thought it was supposed to be. And I, I think Jesus' teaching on prayer in here is really, is really no different, Right? The first thing we see in this prayer, the first thing we see is our Father. Um, it's something that Jeremy talked about and Jay talked about. It frames the entire prayer. But from a, from a cultural sense, from a Jewish sense, so you would have, um, they, they had a good idea of their forefathers, right? They talk about Moses and Abraham and David, and they, they recounted their history often, and they knew it well, but they would have not approached God as Father. They would have seen him as just too big and too holy for that. One commentary I read um, kind of addressed it like this. It says, addressing God as Father was too homely and affectionate to be an appropriate address to God in Judaism. 
and that Jesus' own adoption of it in his prayer life expresses his consciousness of their unique relationship to God. And his authorizing his disciples to address God in this way is understood as his giving them a share in this relationship to God. This is something we can't miss. This is something that really frames our, should frame our, the way that we pray and our idea of prayer. That Jesus, the Son of God, he confirms to his disciples that they are indeed a part of his family and that he can call, they can call God Father. And so that's how we're going to approach this, and that's just something that, I mean, Jay really taught, hit it well last week when he talks about give us this day our daily bread, a Father provides. And so in that sense, um, that's kind of the way that we're going to approach this this morning. So we have two, two additional petitions that are shown to us in the prayer. The first one is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the second is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. One thing I think that's interesting about the petitions you see in the Lord's Prayer is how short they really are. I think it really shows how well Jesus understands us and how well Jesus understands his Father. He understands what we need and what we need to ask. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, the economy, the way in which Jesus summarizes it all, has reduced everything to but a few sentences is something that surely proclaims the fact that the speaker is none other than the Son of God himself. So while these are short, they are packed. And I'm going to try to do my best to to, to unpack this um, and clear it up a little bit this morning. So the first one we see is forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And so as as I was thinking about it this week, I kept repeating that to myself. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. Okay, what what does this mean? What does this mean? I think it's good for us to understand what it means so then we can apply and and talk about how this this impacts our life. So one thing I do want to say is the term debts here really shouldn't be taken to mean anything but sins. Um, And so it's we are asking God, forgive us our sins. And so so we're coming to God, coming to God in prayer and saying, forgive us our sins. What do we have I think there's two ways that we, we can approach this, right? If we come to God, we can say, forgive us our sins um, because look at all the good things I've done. Look at how much better I am than all of these other people. I've got it all figured out. I, I know what's going on. Look at me. Um, forgive me because I deserve it, right? And then the other posture is the posture of a child coming to a father that says, forgive me. I didn't do what you said. I, 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 I kind of messed it up. I, you told me to do this. I did that. You told me not to do that, and I did that. So that's the attitude of the prayer, I think, that Jesus, this is why this idea of our Father is so important, that we can come to God as a member of his family. We can come boldly but in humility. Again, paradox, right? We can come boldly to the Father and say, forgive me because we are a member of the family because of what Jesus has done. For us, so to approach um, your father and, and ask for forgiveness um, because you didn't follow his instruction is, is an approach and an attitude of humility. And so, this is this idea of forgive us our sins. We we're confessing. It's something that in our in our culture we don't like to do a lot to to confess. Um, but but the the examples of confession abound in Scripture. The Psalms are full of them. David. Most notably, probably in Psalm 51, confessing to God the, the, that he has sinned. Um, we, we hear about Daniel confessing to God as he prays three times a day. In the story of the prodigal son, 
uh, in the New Testament. The son rehearses his confession before his father. Then he goes to the father and actually confesses it. So we see this everywhere. We see this idea of confession. We're confessing our sins. So that's, that's heavy. That's weighty. Confessing our sins. It's just admitting, admitting this guilt. But one thing I, I want to point out, and I think we have to understand, is that as we do this, um, we're, we're confessing our sins regularly, but we're not asking for continual justification, right? We're not asking to be able to made, be made right and holy before God because what Jesus has done. What Jesus has done for us is a once and for all, past, present, and future covering of our sins. We have been given Jesus' righteousness, and so we do not, when we are called to give an account of our lives, we are declared not guilty if we have put our faith in Christ, not because we confessed our sins 10 minutes before we died, okay? So, because that's this slope. What if something happens? What if you don't, well, Jesus is an all in all. It's all encompassing. His righteousness covers all of us. And so when we put our faith in him, we are justified by that. And so we see this in Romans 5. I want to, I want to make sure I'm not making this up, and I'm going to reference Scripture a lot, because those of you that know me, which maybe is a, some in this room, I can talk about anything. I have opinions about everything, right? But I don't want to have an opinion about this. I, I want this to be rooted here. So in Romans 5, we see in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Moving on in Romans. Uh, Romans verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the key phrase for us here is we have been justified. The idea is that there's this, it's an English term, but this um, present perfect tense that, that indicates something that has been done in the past and continues into the present, okay? So that's not what this prayer isn't. This isn't going to Jesus and say, justify me again. Declare me not guilty again. And in that sense, it doesn't even make, it makes sense. You, you're, you're, you cannot be declared not guilty twice, Right? So in that sense, it doesn't make sense. So what's the point? Why is, why is Jesus asking us to do this? Why is he, if we're already justified, why do we need to confess our sins? I mean, in one sense, Jesus, Jesus tells us to, right? But I think there's a lot more, more to it than that. Um, despite being justified and fully forgiven, even from our, from our future sins, which um, Romans 4 talks about us, this divine forbearance that God has. God knows, right? God knows all things. Sin still has real earthly consequences to us. And I don't think any of us would deny this, that whenever we sin against God or we sin against someone else, there's a consequence to that sin. The eternal consequence, the damnation, if we are in Christ, we don't face that. But we can still feel earthly consequences for sin. And so... Um, the book of Romans pulls this out a lot. Ephesians 4 is another example. So Ephesians 4 starts with talking about gifts and how we should use those gifts to build up the body. But it ends that chapter saying, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And the idea there is that when we sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And we have, we have to, um, you know, there's some separation or something that's, that's wrong um, 
that we need to receive forgiveness for. And so 1 John, I feel like, um, sums this up well. Starting in 1 John 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our sin hinders our fellowship with God. There's, it, something is wrong, and, and so when we come and we have this sin, this, this barrier, this, this idea of confession, um, it, the fellowship is broken. We see this in the story of the prodigal son. Okay? So the story of the prodigal son, we have, uh, we have a, a son who takes his inheritance, goes and squanders it, and then finds himself um, eating with the pigs. And he says... I need to go to my father. I, this, is not, this is not the way my life is supposed to be. And so he says in Luke 15, as, I, as he arose, that is the prodigal son, he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, is, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So in the story, we don't see that the father, um, you know, that the son was outside of the family. The son comes back and the father treats him like a son. So... When, we, when we're talking about this justification, this idea, we're not, we're not falling out of, of God's family, but there's this hindrance, there's this fellowship, there's this problem between us if we don't realize the sins that we have committed before him. And so the problem, the problem is we don't, we don't do this. Um, Notre Dame sociologist uh, Christian Smith in, in his book Soul Searching um, the religious and spiritual lives of American teens found that 40% of teenagers prayed, which we would say is good. They prayed daily. But repentance from sin was missing. Their prayers were primarily used to meet psychological or emotional needs. And the same was found in his study of emerging adults, that the, they prayed to help with their problems or to feel better or for, to feel happier, but they didn't pray to confess their sin, when the reality is the sin is what is likely causing much of that unhappiness, right? Tim Keller, in referencing this study, concludes this. In the prayer of younger Americans, God is a means to the end of a happy life for themselves. Glorifying God is not in view and indeed would be an opaque and confusing concept. Instead, prayer is used on a cost-benefit to the self basis. So a lot of us, and myself included, a lot of times we pray. We pray only when it benefits us. We pray only when we need help. We pray only when we're trying to make a decision. And we don't realize, and guys, a lot of this, I'm preaching myself. We don't realize, I don't realize that a lot of the issues caused are caused by those sins where I have disobeyed God. So quick word on the second part of this. I'm going to come back to this idea of, of, of prayer as a means to kind of this just 
helping ourselves and self-improvement versus confession. I'm going to come back to that. But i, I got to talk about the second part of this verse. So it says, um, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So when you first read this, it's like, as we have forgiven our debtors, so it's like, hold up. So do I, am I meriting my salvation, right? It says, as I, as I um, have forgiven my, our debtors. Uh, so I have to do that or I don't get salvation. Is that, is that what Jesus is teaching? Is it, is it not by grace alone, which means I don't have to do anything? I don't, think that's, I don't think that's it. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching here. I, I think he's teaching a correlation between the two things rather than one causing the other. We don't see, forgive us our debts because I forgave the debts of others or since I forgave uh, others' uh, sins against me. We don't see that. What we actually see um, is this correlation. In Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, we, we sort of see this uh, played out. So this servant is forgiven an enormous debt in the story. I mean, it's, if we converted it to, to dollars today, it's trillions of dollars. He's, he's forgiven this debt. But the servant goes to his fellow servant who owes him and doesn't forgive him and puts him and his family in prison because of it. So the master who forgave the, the enormous debt says to the, the servant, and you, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? John Piper, when referencing the Lord's Prayer, puts it this way. The reason is not because we can earn heaven or merit heaven by forgiving others, but because holding fast to an unforgiving spirit proves that we do not trust Christ. The bottom line is that forgiveness is incredibly powerful. And if we have experienced that forgiveness, it overflows. So as I was thinking this week, I kept coming back to the story of Les Miserables. I know some of, some of you may be familiar with the story, some of you may not. But in the story, there's lots, there's lots going on. The story's book is epically long. But in the story, the, the two people I, that I kept coming back to is the relationship from Jean Valjean and Javert. Right? Jean Valjean, when we, when we first meet him in the story, he's, he's a criminal. He gets paroled, and he immediately commits another crime. He steals some, some silver from a bishop. But the bishop forgives him right there, and that literally changes Jean Valjean's life changes everything about him to the point to where he changes his name. Um, he still, still finds himself in, in tricky situations, but it changes everything about who he is. He is faced with this scandal of grace. He accepts it, and it changes who he is. Um, and then we hear the story that's kind of a parallel to this, the story of, of Javert. So Javert is um, born in a prison, hates criminals. He knows Jean Valjean, and, and, but he hates, he hates criminals, and so he works really hard up and becomes a, a powerful police officer in the city. And he's, he's also basically made it his life goal to chase this guy down, to chase Jean Valjean down. Um, long story short, there comes an opportunity for Jean Valjean to kill Javert. He's given a pistol, they go back into an alley, and instead he points it up in the air, he shoots it, and he lets Javert go. But Javert, being a guy that has had this works-based mentality his entire life, is confronted with the scandal of grace, confronted with this forgiveness given to him for no reason, and he can't bear it. He can't handle it. In the end, um, he ends up taking his own life because the tension created by that forgiveness, he's unable to accept it, and he's unable to, he's unable to just go on. He can't, he can't make sense of everything. When he's, when he's confronted with this, this scandal of grace. And I think that's the, the essence of, 
of what's going on. And we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Guys, if we harbor an unforgiving spirit or we seek vengeance, um, not only, um, you know, in other places of scriptures, is a warn against those things. This is a warning for us here, too. If we have those things in our heart, uh, there's this idea that the spirit of God may not be in us. Because we, or we don't understand the forgiveness that has been given to us. And so when we come in confession, the idea is not to just beat ourselves down. The idea is to understand how much we've been forgiven and for that to change our life daily. And so as we, as we think about that, I, um, this, the example of the scandal of grace confronted to us, we've done nothing to merit it. That's what we're coming to God with. That's what we're coming to our Father for those of us that are they're followers of Christ, that's what we're coming to and saying when we say forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So moving on to the, the next petition here in um, uh, 6.13. It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So for, for those of us that know the Bible, this, this petition sort of immediately brings up questions, right? Um, maybe not the second half. Second half, deliver us from evil. We, this, this makes sense to us, and it's appropriate for us to pray this, and Jesus is instructing us to pray this, right? We, we need deliverance from evil. Some translations translate that the evil one. Basically, we need deliverance from God, I mean, from Satan, the world, and our flesh. All of these things acting against what God has for our life. So we need deliverance from those things. I think that's, that's fairly clear. That's easy for us to understand, right? We need that deliverance. But what about the first half? Lead us not into temptation. We know that God does not tempt us. James 1 um, makes that clear. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each of us, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then that desire, when conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, what is fully grown, brings forth death. We know that God doesn't tempt us. I mean, it's clearly, it's clearly shown here. The word temptation in this case can also uh, be translated a testing or a trial. So lead me not into testing or lead me not into, into trials, into to hard, hard things. Um, but in a sense, that, honestly, that, that didn't clear it up for me in that because we, we see that we're supposed to actually look at trials joyfully. Back to James, James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And again in Romans, just so, we, just so we're sure. <clears throat> Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So what does Jesus have in mind of this prayer? We know that God doesn't tempt us, but, and, but we also know that we will likely be brought into trials and testing to refine our faith. I think what's in view here is what uh, Charles Spurgeon calls a humble self-distrust. That is, we know ourselves, we know our tendencies, so we are fearful of failing the test that God puts before us. We're fearful that when we are tempted, we will fall. Um, that makes sense, especially when you put it with the second part of the, the petition that says, um, 
you know, deliver us from evil. Um, the, the reformer Martin Luther puts it this way. I'm quoting a lot of old guys here. <clears throat> Temptation is the best school into which the Christian can enter, yet, in itself, apart from the grace of God, it is so doubly hazardous that this prayer should be offered every day. Lead us not into temptation. Or, and if we must enter into it, Lord, deliver us from evil. I think this prayer is very similar to the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden. Right? And he says, going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we're humbly asking to be spared of situations. We're humbly coming saying, God, I don't know if I can pass the test you're going to put before me. So, um, you know, lead me not into that. But if you do, deliver me um, from evil. And I think that's the sense of it. So this, this is a prayer of direction, right? We're asking God to take us somewhere. I was struck with this because this is very different than the way that I pray for direction. I do not pray, lead me into temptation. I, I typically pray, um, should I take this job? Or, uh, I don't know, should I move to Norman? Or should I, t- this, should this be my major? Should I be psychology? Should I be an accountant? Should I, what should I do? Should I, should I marry this person? Should I have kids? Should I have two kids? Should I have, what school should they go to? This is a lot of times how I'm praying. I'm praying, I want to read Matt, thou shalt take the job in Norman. I want to read scripture and it tell me directly, directly what I'm supposed to do. That's not the prayer of direction that we see from Jesus here. The prayer of direction is lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. And so um, one quote that that I liked out of this is a a quote by a guy named Kevin DeYoung um, in his book, Just Do Something. He says, we should spend more time trying to figure out how to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God as a doctor or lawyer and less time worrying about whether or not God wants us to be a doctor or lawyer, right? These are kind of coming into the situations where we find ourselves, right? I think a lot of times, me included, um, we pray and we, we, we don't trust God, and so we want to see this clear path. And instead of saying, lead me not into temptation to deliver me from evil, we say, uh, give me a clear, clear sign that I'm supposed to do this. Make it, make it obvious to me. And sometimes that's the way that God works, and sometimes it's not. It's obviously wise to pray for direction, but this is the way Jesus tells us to do that. Let's do this. So let's kind of recap a little bit. So in his, in his prayer, in this prayer, Jesus instructs us to confess our sins and experience the power of forgiveness. And this is why Jesus links God's forgiveness with our forgiveness of others, because once we truly experience God's forgiveness, it will spill over in our lives, right? Good trees... Um, produce good fruit, and one of those um, is forgiveness. He also, Jesus also instructs us to pray for daily guidance and deliverance through prayer. And so, um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 talks about that God, God doesn't, never puts us in situations where there's not a way of escape. And so that's, that's the sense of the prayer here. It's, lead me not into temptation, but if you do, please, Jesus, help me find this way of escape. I'm fearful of, of sinning against you. Help me find this way of escape. So as I evaluated these petitions, I had these, these questions about my own prayer life, and, and I hope that they, um, they're insightful for you too. <clears throat> Am I confessing my sins and seeking God's forgiveness and reconciliation often? 
Am I praying that I would be led away from situations where I'm prone to sin? And am I praying for deliverance from the sinful desires within my flesh? Am I praying that God would help me consider him more valuable than his gifts? And am I praying so that my life will be easier or that I know and understand who God is more? So, given that we've talked about prayer, I think it seems fitting to kind of close our time with a time of of prayer. Um, I'm going to be honest and say it feels a little bit shallow for me to just stand up here and look at all of you and say, okay, now spend the next two minutes confessing your sins. You know, you don't have many, so just confess a few of them, right? No, that's not what I'm going... So a lot of, a lot of us sin is deep-rooted in us. It's hard for us to see where we're sinful, and it's hard for us to forgive those that have sinned against us. So what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to give us a minute to kind of bow our heads and take some time and be, be quiet. It's going to be quiet, and that's okay. Um, and then I am going to speak some truths of Scripture over us so that we know what God our Father is like, and we know that we can come to him um, through things. And if I happen to say something you agree with, you can say amen or, or, um, or whatever, but we're just going to take this time and give you a minute to, to think about God as Father, what that means and how that allows us to come to him and say, okay, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, or lead us not in temptation. We come as a child comes to his father, the Father and ask him for things. So if you would um, just take a minute um, and just think about God as Father, and I will, I will read these truths over you um, in just a second. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, constantly interceding for us when we don't know what to pray. For those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Christ Jesus died and was raised and is at the right hand of God, interceding for us right now. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things in the present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your truth. We're grateful that you are a good, good father to us, that we don't have to come um, scared, that when we put our trust and our faith in you, we are adopted into your family And we're able to come and say, Father, forgive me. 
Help me forgive others. Lead me not into temptation. God, deliver me from all of the evil around me. God, we know that our enemy is a roaring lion seeking to devour us, that the world and our flesh work against your desires. But God, we ask for your deliverance. We ask for your word. We ask for your love um, to just overwhelm us that when we are confronted with the scandal of grace, the power of forgiveness, that it changes who we are. And that when we seek um, prayerful guidance from you, that we will do that in a way not to make us more comfortable, not to make us more money, not to, to take all of the confusion and question out of life, but to deepen our trust um, of you. So in your name we pray. Amen. So now we're going to um, enter into a, a time of communion. We do this every week here. This is something Jesus has instructed us to do. And so we do this every week to help us remember again the amount that we've been forgiven. And so on the night that Jesus was crucified, he's having dinner with his, um, his, his disciples. And he, and he looks at them and says, this is my body broken for you. Um, broken for you. Do this um, in remembrance of me. It's, that's do this so that we can remember the sacrifice and the penalty paid and the love that I have shown you. And that same night, Jesus took the cup. Um, he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so now we're going to enter into a time of of communion. And the way way that this works here, we'll have some stations up at front and we'll have some in the back. And um, if you are a follower of Christ, if you consider yourself a a child of God, you've, you've, um, through faith, been adopted into God's family, we ask that you would come and take this. You don't have to, you can be a guest, you don't have to be a member. Anybody can come and and take this. And we typically take the bread, dip it in the the juice, and and we remember um, that way. When When we taste it, we remember um, the sacrifice that, that God has um, God has, has, has been poured out for us. And one, one thing I do want to say is if, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, if you don't consider yourself a member of God's family, um, we'd ask that you would stay seated there during this time. Um, this is for family. This is for us to remember what God has done for us and to come to our Father um, to, to, and, and just to thank him and to remember what he has done. So um, basically uh, the, the guys' band is going to play. And uh, whenever you're ready, just come up and um, and see and, and, and take the wine and the juice.